Hi, and welcome to the Writers' Forum on WRBH. I'm David Benedetto, and today I am joined on phone by Dr. Anthony Feinstein, who is the author of Shooting War, 18 Profiles of Conflict Photographers. Thanks so much for joining us. Oh, my pleasure. Uh, so to kind of begin, uh, this this collection of essays, along with the, the photographs and the people that they describe, I'm really interested to hear about um, how you started writing these and how this book came about. So um, I, I'm a researcher at the University of Toronto. I'm also a psychiatrist. And one of my areas of research over the last almost two decades has been to look at frontline journalists and how they cope emotionally with their work in war zones and their coverage of disasters. And over this period, I have had the pleasure of meeting some really wonderful frontline photographers. I've seen a lot of their work, and um, I'm very taken with the power of these photographs. And so I decided to write a book with the photograph as the starting point. So um, I chose initially 12, then I expanded it into 18 photographs that I admire and then work backwards from that by going to speak to the photographer who took the photograph to find out what did it take to get that particular image, um, what was the cost to the photographer in having to navigate the war zone or the conflict zone to obtain that particular image, and then building up the essay around the particular photograph and the man and woman who took it. Yeah, no, I, I find that fascinating. And each of the essays... Um, we'll go into to, to separate ones in a little bit, but I, I love how you capture these different frames from these individual people, uh, these conflicts, and a lot of times the things that you don't, us as viewers not in a conflict, don't really see as a part of the violence and um, some of the after effects of war. Yes, that, that, that's exactly it. You know, I think we look at these images, which are remarkable, and, um, you know, we moved by them or we are appalled by them. Um, but we don't often think about what was the cost to the photographer in getting that image. And, you know, my, my starting point was if we feel these strong emotions looking at an image, what were the emotions of the photographers like when they actually took that image? Because they were obviously right there at the scene. And that's one of the central ideas behind the book is to have a look and see how the photographers have coped with the work that they do um, and what, what, what's the price that they paid to get us these remarkable images? No, oh, exactly. And, and one of the ones that's kind of stuck with me, both your essay accompanying it and the image itself, and I know it stuck with you as well, is um, a photographer, Alexandra Boulay. Um, yes. Her, her photo in the Balkans. I was wondering if you could describe that photo for our listeners and talk a little bit about writing that essay and getting close to this person who's sadly no longer with us. Yes. Um, so, yes, I find it a very powerful photograph. It actually hangs... Uh, a copy of it hangs on my wall in my office. It's it's a photograph from, from Kosovo. Um, you see two women in the foreground. Um, they, they, they're smiling. One of the women has been given a bunch of red roses. Um, and then when you look behind, in the background, you can see buildings burning. And this is an example of ethnic cleansing. Um, the United Nations... Troops have come through to provide some shelter to the civilians, um, but other civilians have clearly lost their home and have been ethnically cleansed. Um, and it really captures, I think, the, 
the awful nature of civil war. Um, you know, this particular image right now tells a story at a point in time, six months down the road, it was quite possible that the women who are smiling uh, were the ones who would have had their homes torched and burned as the war moved across uh, Kosovo and villages were, were cleansed of their inhabitants. And so I think what the photographer's done here very, very skillfully um, is capture the complexities and the, the awful nature of a civil war conflict. Um, I, I, I moved by the, the photograph in part because the photographer is no longer with us. She died young, not from a conflict-related um, injury. Um, she, she, she ended up having a terrible bleed, um, but by the time she got to hospital, it, it was too late to save her. She left behind a remarkable body of work. And for me to get a better understanding of who she was, I met with her mother in Paris. Um, her mom is Annie Boulard, who runs a photograph agency, and she was married to a celebrated photographer as well. So photography runs deep in this family. And it's always, I think, very, very moving to speak to a parent who's lost a child and to listen to mom describe what her daughter was like and the fierce drive that her daughter brought to her work. Um, I was touched by, by um, the mother's description of her child and her, you know, her palpable sense of loss. And always, I think, when you know, someone dies young like this, a person so creative, you have a sense of what might have been and of you know, so much promise that was left unfulfilled, which I think adds to the, the poignancy of the story and, of course, the photograph as well. So it was very moving to speak to the mother, and I find this photograph really compelling. No, I could see that. I, I did as well. And I think that that's a really interesting idea regarding, you know, these lives cut short, which plays into um, the idea of conflict photography, because a lot of the times you read articles, you try and get profiles, but there's so much, it it makes so many people anonymous uh, in, in a conflict zone, the people that are really the most suffering uh, and, and mm -hmm. kind of forgotten. And and I think the idea of shooting in this period is, is trying to provide a face and provide uh, either a symbolic or an actual image that can represent that. Yeah, and I think, you know, you, you raise a good point because, you know, to a man and woman, all these photographers said to me that, um, you know, what they endure in terms of their work cannot be compared to the people in their photograph who have, you know, lost everything, who've been displaced by war, who have family members killed, who, um, who end up as refugees, etc. And, of course, they're correct. There is, you know, there is no, there's no equivalent in terms of suffering. Um, but that said... Um, as the essays reveal, to get these remarkable images before the public, the photographer has to endure a lot, um, whether it's physical or psychological or a combination of the two. And um, that's, as I, you know, I don't want to belabor the point, but that was one of the reasons why I wanted to write these essays as well. No, I get that. And it's, it's complicated. And that the relationship, I know in um, in one of the essays, you talk about uh, Corinne Dufka, who... Um, yeah who was there for some horrendous things and documenting a lot of interesting facets. And I, was she there in uh, the Balkans as well, I believe, right? She was, yes. And she was injured in the Balkans. The armored car in which she was traveling uh, was blown up, and she sustained a, a very significant laceration, which required you know, some extended time away from work. So um, she got caught up in a, in a very visceral way in the, in the Balkan conflict. 
It's true. And you go on to talk about her um, reaction to the, the Nairobi embassy bombing. And uh, I was wondering if you could talk about that and just kind of her way of going through those emotions and then walking away from photography itself. Yes. I mean, I, 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 that's such a remarkable story because, you know, you need to back up a little bit. She started life as a um, social worker, mm. a psychiatrist social worker, then went off to um, work in a conflict country in Central America and then, you know, just drifted into um, frontline photography and found out that she was very good at it. And she kind of worked her way up from the bottom to, to you know, to really quite a celebrated position as a Reuters frontline photographer being sent to, you know, multiple conflicts, winning awards and building a, you know, a stellar career doing this kind of work. And then the American embassy was, the American embassy in Nairobi was bombed by Al-Qaeda. And that was obviously a big news story. Um, and by the time she got to Nairobi, she had, in, in essence, missed the, missed the scoop that uh, she'd arrived a little late. And, you know, she explained to me that, you know, if your work is not absolutely uh, completely current, you, you think you've essentially missed the boat. And she was, you know, very angry at herself for getting there late and, you know, taking a lot of photographs that would never be used because she arrived late on the scene. And then from there, she made her way to a hotel in Kigali, Rwanda, and switched on the television where this bombing was getting a lot of coverage. I believe it was on CNN. And it turned out that a number of Kenyans in proximity to the explosion were struck by shards of glass from the high rise that had been damaged. And the glass had damaged the eyes. So there was a high frequency of visual injuries. A number of Kenyans had been blinded by the attack. And this really resonated for Corinne Dufka because she came from a family in which her mother um, had struggled with visual difficulties and, and uh, I believe, uh, another relative too. And so, um, you know, the notion of a, a person losing their sight was something very close to her heart. And, and she found it troubling and, and emotional. And, and then she, you know, at that moment, she started to question um, her own motivation. She was thinking, well, why am I doing this? Am I... Am I doing this for the awards that I get for my photographs? Or, you know, am I doing it for the reasons that I got into this work in the first place, which was to tell the story of people who are hurt and injured by war, who have lost possessions and lost family because of war, who've been dispossessed by war. And she started to question her motivation. And she realized at that moment that she had, that she had lost her way as a photographer. And what she was giving voice to is something called moral injury mm -hmm. at the time. And in response to this, she made a decision there and then to quit the profession and do something else. And she went into human rights work, and she's uh, remained working for Human Rights Watch ever since then. Ended up getting one of those MacArthur Genius Awards for her work in human rights. A very accomplished, remarkable woman. But I think what's striking about her story is that she had the emotional strength, sitting in that hotel room in Kigali, to decide on the spot to give up a celebrated career as a war photographer and do human rights work. And I think that just illustrates the power of something called moral injury in guiding a person's behavior. I agree. And uh, that that's something that's kind of at the heart of your book, uh, both um, what's done to people, whether it be physical injuries or, or PTSD, but also this idea of moral in in injury. Mm. Um, would you yeah. just define that for our listeners and kind of go into why that concept is so important for you and for this book? 
Yes, so I think in a moral injury, a simple definition is a sense, the person has a sense of having lost their moral compass, that um, their behavior hasn't uh, met what they regard as morally acceptable behavior. And that can come about through something that you do or something that you fail to do, failure to intervene, for example. And in the case of journalists, it can also arise um, in response to how your news organization has behaved. You think that perhaps your news editor or your news boss hasn't made the morally correct decision and which has compromised the story or the work. All the moral injury might arise from seeing the behavior of some of their colleagues, how, how they have dealt with difficult, difficult and emotional situations. And so moral injury is associated with some primary emotions such as shame and guilt in particular. I want to stress that moral injury is not a mental illness. You know, post-traumatic stress disorder is, depression is, substance abuse is, but moral injury is not a mental illness. However, the military in particular know that this can prove troubling to, to a person and, if not dealt with, might in time become the conduit to something like depression or post-traumatic stress disorder. And in the case of journalists, I think particularly frontline journalists, they work with stories that leave them vulnerable to moral injury. Um, and the, the central issue is, you know, am I a journalist first and foremost, or where's my humanity in, in the story? Do I reach out and help people first, or do I reach out and take a photograph? And if I do reach out and help, to, and help how far do I go? Which, which people do I help? What informs my decision-making decision in terms of helping someone? And so journalists can be left with many uncomfortable decisions to make in their line of work, and if they feel that somehow they've got those decisions wrong, then potentially they can develop moral injury. And it became quite obvious to me working on a research project investigating journalists covering the refugee crisis in Europe, mm. that moral injury was a particularly difficult uh, field for them to navigate because they might be on a beach, for example, in southern Italy or Greece, and there's no one else around, and there's a boat offshore bobbing around, and the refugees on the boat, and the refugees cannot swim, and they're calling out for help. What do the journalists do? Do they wade in to save people? If they do, who do they save? If they're children, do they go for children before they're adults? And if they're multiple children, which child do they save? And then once they've saved someone, what do they do next? Do they fetch food for them and water? Do they put them in their car and try, try and bring them to safety? But the numbers are so big, which journalists do you, you know, which refugees do you choose? And so they're constantly having to make these very challenging and at times uncomfortable decisions. And it's important to remember that they're not, you know, humanitarian workers. Mm -hmm. And so those kinds of situations can lead to moral injury developing. Yeah, I, I can only imagine. I, I have friends that have um, worked in refugee camps and there are similar uh, decision-making things that they have to do, even though they're being trained to do work in that situation, which is very difficult. Yeah. Another kind of side of that thing, which I, which I found very interesting, was um, one of the essays you did was for Sir Don McCullen, who you could just fill up this interview talking about him and all that he's done over his odd 70, 80 years. But he had a quote about this photo he took of a uh, Vietnam soldier when he was there documenting that conflict. And he says, I have come to hate this photo. It is too famous, too symbolic. It has become a piece of artwork. And, and I love that quote because it kind of describes mm. another totally different problem for some of these photos to where they're, they're aggrandizing these things and in a certain way still making the people in suffering minimized. Yes. 
It's complex, isn't it? Because while I understand what he's saying on one level, it is such a remarkable photograph. I mean, it's the power of the photograph that pulls in the viewer. Mm -hmm. And, you know, just looking at the photograph, you know, a picture tells a thousand words, tells a thousand words, you you, you can understand it. And so, in in a sense, I've always wondered whether he he protests too much. I, I think... He has so many iconic images that move people that that this is what makes him such a great photographer, that it's inevitable that people will be attracted to to this. um, I'm not too sure how you can navigate around it. And and while I understand his desire not to have the, the image, in a sense, take on a life of its own, in some ways he's become the victim of his own skills and success because he takes such remarkable photographs. And then the second issue over here is, you know, the aesthetics of it and what, and, you know, whether you regard it as art or not. And I think that, that that's a different question. Yeah. But I think Don McCullen has a number of, of, of iconic images that trouble him in, in, in a similar way. I mean, there's, there's one particular image that he took of a, um, of a starving child in Biafra, which is also a very difficult image for him to, to look at. He, he, he stays away from it. Um, he feels very guilty about about taking that particular image um, of, of a young albino child who was who was starving, he calls it his Lucifer image. Yeah. But once again, it's, you know, illustrating the the emotional cost that comes with this kind of work. Yeah, no, it's very true, and I, I still think about that image. It's interesting to talk about, you know, apart from the considering these works of art or the aesthetics of it, considering their after effects on people, I, I'm still haunted by that image of, of the starving child in Biafra. I, I think about that from yeah. time to time. It's, it's kind of ingrained in my memory, as will uh, many of these in, in the book. And I guess for the photographers, you know, in making those decisions, Sometimes those after effects, both on, you know, the populace abroad, as well as for legal issues. I know some of your photographers were taking photographs in war-torn countries, including during the Balkan Wars in the 90s. And some of their photos were used during trials against people that had yeah. committed genocide, which is, which is a use. Well, yes. I mean, just the power of the image to be used as evidence at the war crimes tribunal in The Hague. Um, so you're referring to the remarkable image that Ron Haviv took of Serb paramilitary um, kicking dead civilians. They had mm-hmm. just executed uh, three, three civilians, and Haviv captured this photograph of one man with a cigarette in his hand, quite nonchalantly, just kicking the, um, the dead, one of the dead civilians in front of him. And th- that, that became an iconic image of the, the war in Bosnia. It, um, the Bosnians embraced that image as a as a focal point for their suffering. Um, Aviv is regarded as a hero in Bosnia to this day for taking that photograph. That photograph ended up on posters and, and banners, became a rallying call for justice. And as you point out, it ended up being used as evidence at the war crimes tribunal in The Hague to, con- to convict some of these um, rogue para- paramilitary uh, individuals of, of war crimes. And so you do see the power of a, of a photograph to work in such a positive way once again, to such a compelling image. No, I agree. Um, kind of going through the, these essays, one of the things I was interested to hear in kind of the crafting process is, what was the hardest one of these for you to write? Because I kind of was expecting more of like a biographical approach when I when I got this book. And I see a lot of these are really deeply personal and really going in deep with both the photographer and kind of your relationship yes. with it. Um, yeah. So what was the hardest and how was that crafting process like for you? 
I think the hardest essays to write were for the three people who are not alive, who couldn't speak for themselves. So that's Alexandra Bula, who didn't die because of combat, but Tim Hetherington, who was killed in Libya, and David Chum Seymour, who was killed in Suez. So, you know, I'm now speaking to people who are either family or friends of the deceased photographer, and that always introduces, I think, an added challenge because the photographer is not there to speak for him or herself. And... Under those circumstances in particular, you don't, you don't want to get it wrong. And so it becomes hard to attribute emotions to someone whom you're not speaking to. You're working through someone else's voice, and I think that's you know, a potential minefield. Um, however, in, the, in, in all three cases, the people whom I was speaking to were very close to the, to the dead photographer. They had um, obviously two family members. But in the case of Tim Hetherington, you know, his two close friends, Sebastian Junger and James Brabison, they, um, they, they knew Hetherington very well. And so I felt confident that if I could capture accurately what they were telling me, it would end up to be a good account of Tim Hetherington. But I, I was aware that under, in circumstances like these, if it excuse the metaphor, you are stepping into a bit of a minefield. Yeah. Because Things are things are secondhand, and what's interesting with with Chim Seymour, who's such a famous name in photography, given that he's one of the founding fathers of Magnum. Um, you know, you're going back a long time. The, the man I spoke to, um, Ben Schneiderman, his nephew, you know, was very young when Chim Seymour died in Suez, and so he wouldn't have had, you know, in-depth, detailed knowledge of his uncle. Mm. But what he did have was a lot of knowledge of his uncle from his mother, who was Chum Seymour's sister. And I think, uh, you know, Ben Schneider being, being a very a very scholarly and, and sensitive man, I think gave me a very accurate and good portrayal of what his uncle had been like. Another thing I was interested in in this book was uh, kind of some common threads that you got from all these different conflict photographers, you know, kind of looking at them in this this very close way. If there's anything in particular you think makes a good conflict photographer? Number one is you've got to be able to what they all what they all showed was an ability to do this work for a long time. And I am struck by this. You know, I, as I mentioned, I've been looking at frontline journalism for nearly two decades now. I've come across many journalists who felt for a whole host of reasons that they wanted to go off to war and report on war. And I've seen many journalists cover one war and then get out of it as quickly as they could. They just didn't have, you know, the stomach for conflict. They, they were overwhelmed by, by fear or terror um, or they just the very nature of this kind of work wasn't for them. Yeah. I don't mean that in a negative way whatsoever. It's fully understandable that this was just not something that they wanted to voluntarily do, having you know, tasted it and smelt it for the first time. But now you've got this other group that I've written about who have gone back to war year after year after year, often for decades. And so there's something really quite remarkable about that, their ability to work in the most difficult and dangerous places for years on end. If you think about it, you know, soldiers don't have this kind of exposure to, to battle. That You might have a single tour of duty or maybe two tours, and that's it, exceptionally three tours. But now you've got a group of men and women who voluntarily have been doing this for you know, 20 years or more. 
And so that, that's the first observation. They have a temperament and a physiological constitution that allows them to function under such extreme stress. And not only function, but actually function superbly well and end up producing a remarkable body of work. So that's, I think, a, a common thread that, one common thread that, that binds them together. The other one that I, that I think is worth speaking about is that many of these photographers don't just see themselves as a photographer. They see themselves as a storyteller, that they see the photograph as a means to an end, which is basically to shed light onto the darkest places on our planet, to give a voice to those who've been dispossessed, who've been victimized and hurt and terrorized by war, to tell the story of conflict that is raging far from home, that it's important to keep civil society informed of these events because in an interconnected world, these events are relevant to our own existence. And so there's this higher calling as well, which is not just, I'm going to get a fantastic image, but what might the image do in terms of um, contributing to civil society, keeping us informed, which I think is so necessary. Yeah. So I think it's a combination of, the, of many factors, but those are the two big threads that I think unite this this group of men and women. I, I get that. And I think, you know, there's a stereotype of conflict photographers as being like the self-aggrandizing, like adventure-seeking Hemingway types. But I feel yeah. to do it for a long period of time, you have to be mission-oriented. You have to really feel a passion to do this thing and that you're doing some sort of good out of it. I think so. And I think you know, if you want to do great photographs, I believe, then you have to have that outlook because, you know, if you're just in it for the thrill or for the adventure, then I don't think that's going to produce remarkable images. I think it has to be something deeper than that, which allows these photographers to connect with the people that they're photographing. If it were purely you know, some kind of visceral thrill, you're not going to be able to make this deep connection that all these photographers have made with their subjects. Yeah. So I think that also informs the image in a particular way, which you know, ends up moving us so profoundly. Yeah, no, I, I agree. And, and it's interesting, you know, this idea of having these things documented, these what earlier versions of history would consider like kind of the periphery. It really brings out what these conflicts do in all their awfulness and all their, their humanness. Um, I remember reading um, C.V. Wedgwood's The Thirty Years' War and her being one of those first historians to talk about the utter suffering of a civilian population that we don't have any documentation for. Yes, I think you know, these photographers will tell you that that's one of their missions, to tell, to tell the story. I mean, they, they are visual historians. They are contemporary visual historians. They capture history with images. And that is a very powerful motivating factor for them as well, that they are bearing witness to these events that need to be captured, that need to be recorded. Um, and they have a particular skill with a camera that allows them to do it. Yeah. And I think, you know, looking back over these long careers, you can see someone like, you know, Don McCullough, for example, you know, his photographs have provide, provided visual testimony, you know, to wars going all the way back to, to, to Vietnam. This is going back 50 years yeah. of, 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 of war. Which, yeah. which is fascinating and, and so useful for us kind of looking in and trying to get our own context. I don't, I don't want to sound you know, too grandiose, but I think what these men and women do is that, particularly in a world now which is so interconnected through social media, the Internet, you know, they, they keep us informed of events far from home that are very important for us to know about. I think, you know, if we need to try and understand why, um, you know, men want to fly airplanes into skyscrapers in 
you know, in great in great American cities. You know, where's the origin of this of this hate coming from? Yeah. We need to understand uh, the world outside of our own society to get a, a better appreciation of what's going on. And this is where you know, the, the, the war photographer, the conflict photographer, fulfills such an important function because they help us get an understanding of this. And I think that's necessary. To kind of wrap us up, I know we're short on time. Uh, one final question I have for you is, um, what are your hopes for this this book? What do you hope people get out of it? Well, you know, on one on one very simple level, I, like, like every author, you just hope your, your book is read. Yeah. On a deeper level, I think we come back to the theme that, that you raised early on in this interview, which is for people to get an understanding of what it takes for these images to come before us. So, you know, we look at the image, we marvel at its content, but spare a thought to the photographer who took it. Try and understand that this particular photograph is part of a larger body of work that hasn't come easily to the photographer, that there is a price to pay. And I say this advisedly because you know, the photographers are very clearly stating that they do not want the focus to be on them. You know, the focus is really on the individuals within the photograph. And I understand that. And I get it. At the same time, I think just spare a thought for the men and women who took these photographs because, as the essays reveal, these come at a cost. No, I, I'd agree with that. Um, well, Dr. Feinstein, thank you so much for spending this time with us. Well, thank you very much for your interest. I, I enjoyed talking to you very much.